Welcome back to series two of Mud Between Your Toes. In this series, I'm going to let my guests do all the talking. People with a great and often inspirational story to tell, or maybe just something funny. So sit back and enjoy Conversations with Pete Wood. Hello, I'm going slightly off topic this week to talk to Australian journalist Lachlan Cahoon about his new project, Australian Lives. Australian Lives seeks to create an online space where the life stories of Australians can be stored, collected, curated, honored, and read. The site is rich in content and stories about Aussies who have made a difference. And the two people we're going to chat about today are Lachlan's parents, Des and Meg Cahoon, a couple who, by all accounts, were total characters from the old school of cigarette-smoking, gin-swilling raconteurs. So Lachlan Cahoon, welcome back to Conversations with Pete Wood. It's a pleasure, Pete. Lachlan, we last chatted in series one, mainly about my book, Mud Between Your Toes, which of course you were the editor. But this week I want to chat about your mum and dad who sounded like characters who would have been quite at home sitting at a Parisian cafe chatting to Hemingway and Galhorn. Indeed, the Australian media said that your father, Des, was Australia's most gregarious man. That's quite a statement from a country with well, quite a few gregarious men. Absolutely. Uh, Dad was, um, was one of the old school journalistic characters. He was like um, classic um, copy boy to, to editors uh, via a foreign correspondent uh, role in the, in the 60s and, and, and 70s and uh, always had a cigarette hang out of his mouth, never far away from a bar or a drink. Um, always thought that his best work was done uh, in a bar talking to people and uh, and yeah, just just an absolute love, loved a party, and and seemed to have a inexhaustible energy for for it all, and uh, a very colourful person. I mean, you talk about the old school. If anyone knows about the lifestyles of newspaper editors from the old days, they will recognise your father's love of the long lunch, which, according to you, extended well past dinner time and more occasionally into the next day. This made him a larger-than-life figure. Now, as you know, my own father was a similar character, and I must say, as kids, we found this quite fascinating, if not slightly tedious at times. Was it the same with you kids? Well, it was exhausting because um, we'd... Dad was very rarely at home. I have to say, it wasn't until uh, honestly I became a journalist, uh, cadet journalist at eighteen, and uh, and Dad was working on the same floor as me, the advertiser, and that was when we actually connected as father and son. Because prior to that, he wasn't he wasn't around very much. He was at work or work, you know, in inverted commas, was uh, was basically um, drinking and, and partying. But uh, just to give you an idea, Dad was a correspondent for the Herald and Witty Times Group in in London in the in the nineteen sixties, from about. Uh, 62 to, to 65 or 66. Um, in fact, um, I was um, adopted at the age of six weeks and at the age of seven weeks, we were on the boat to London where dad was to take up his position. Um, and in those days, what he did was um, he basically uh, covered um, the UK and Europe for um, a group of Australian newspapers. And because of the time zones, he was always working at night. And um, this was at the, um, the Herald and Weekly Times office just off, off the Strand. And uh, invariably, he'd end up at, at a bar with all the printers um, uh, after work. And often they were mixing with the um, 
uh, with the theatrical crowd, the thespians from Shaftesbury Avenue had come down from the West End. And um, the story is that he uh, got, um, got drinking and became drinking buddies with, with Peter O'Toole, Lawrence of Arabia, and then, uh, and then Oliver Reed. So they'd, um, O'Toole would, would come off stage in Shaftesbury Avenue, Dad had finished work at the Herald Mythic Times, they'd catch up for a drink and, and continue on until really, you know, um, the early hours of the morning, um, sometimes with Oliver Reed, who apparently they both drank under, drank under the table. Apparently, their dad said that Oliver Reed was a lightweight <laughs> and, um, and invariably would, uh, I was only like about two or three at the time, um, so I have very dim memories of this. My sister, who's older, can remember that um, Peter O'Toole and, and dad would, uh, would show up at our flat um, at Wimbledon at about sort of 10.30am after drinking all night and into the morning uh, and mum would, would have to make breakfast for them. Um, so that's the sort of thing that we had to put up with. Um, but mum never, never minded. I mean, she always said when Peter O'Toole came on television, she said, oh, he could put his shoes under my bed anytime. So I guess, <laughs> she, didn't really, I guess she didn't really mind. I mean, they, they hung out with the thespian crowd, as you said, in London. I mean, just as an aside, I wonder if they ever met my aunt and uncle who were West End actors, Andrew and Susan Ray, because um, they hang, hung out with that group also, and in fact, Richard Harris, who was a good friend of uh, O'Toole, was, a, was also a great friend of my aunt. He was so poor at the time, he used to come over to my aunt's every Friday for a slap-up meal. Oh. Well, I, th I, think, I think Dad did mention Richard Harris, so I think that, um, that their paths now crossed, and he may um, indeed have met, uh, met your aunt and uncle, so, so that's, that's in, entirely possible. Also, Barry Humphreys, um, Dame Edna Everidge, was, uh, was in, um, on the scene around about that time, and Dad uh, had a bit to do with him, and always claimed that um, he wrote some of the earlier skits, or that Humphreys had uh, appropriated some of his ideas, although we were never <laughs> able to prove that, of course. And why shouldn't it be, anyway? And also in London, of course, uh, your dad covered some of the huge stories of the 1960s, the Profumo affair, Churchill's death in 65, Britain's entry into the common market, and also Beatlemania. Did he ever meet any of the Beatles? Well, yes, he did. Um, I mean, we, were, we had a, um, like a Dormerville camper van. That, um, that we were driving around the UK and eventually drove um, on holiday through Europe. And I can remember, it would have been, um, it would have been three, it's one of the first things that I could actually remember being alive on the planet was uh, we were off on, um, off on a bit of a holiday in the country and Dad said, oh, I've just got to pull in here and interview the Beatles. And um, they were actually um, um, filming um, A Hard Day's Night at the time. Um, so we pulled into the lot and, um, and my sister, my mum and I, um, you know, we had a sandwich or something and a cup of tea and mum had a cup of tea. And dad went off to, to interview the Beatles on, on the set of A Hard Day's Night and came back and he said, well, that Paul McCartney was very, very pleasant, but, uh, but John was a bit standoffish, he said. <laughs> so, um, so, so yeah, he did that. I mean, you mentioned Church of Funeral, that was um, 1965. Um, that's actually the first thing that I can, re I can remember in, um, in life, being alive on this planet was being in dad's office in um, the Herald Wilkie Times, looking out over the Strand as the household cavalry came down the Strand with um, Churchill's coffin with the Union Jack draped on it, um, just passing underneath me. It's the first thing that I can actually remember. And also, of course, in 1967, uh, it was the Civil War in Cyprus and your dad was sent there. He has a few good stories to tell about that, doesn't he? Yes. Well, he does. Um, so in those days, I think also um, he didn't have, he wasn't traveling with a photographer. So he was also taking uh, photographs of the Civil War, which were, which were being, uh, being published. So that meant that he was getting into some sort of very hairy situations to, to take the photographs as well. Um, and so there was one story that uh, 
he was with a, a group of other photographers and journalists and they were hiding behind this sort of this wall where there was some action going on, some combat on the, on the other side, peeling orange, <laughs> oranges and having an orange while this uh, um, skirmish was going on. And, uh, and Dad, of course, had a cigarette and the cigarette was protruding just, just um, beyond the corner of the, um, the wall um, and, um, and he had the end of his cigarette shot off. And in fact, I still have a, um, um, a banner headline from the, uh, from the Melbourne Herald of the time. It says, uh, Cyprus conflict, our reporter shot at. And that was the, uh, the, the banner headline for the, uh, for the Melbourne Herald of the day. And that, that was one of his, uh, yeah, probably his closest brush with, um, with, with danger, these, the Cyprus civil war. Well, I mean, to a degree, yes, I'm sure, other than alcohol. Sadly, he would have missed uh, Lawrence Durrell, who wrote that beautiful book about Cyprus called Bitter Lemons. Yes. I think they yes. might have got on well, but I think uh, by then Lawrence, had, Lawrence Durrell had left Cyprus. Yes, I think probably so. But yeah, I mean, we had those books. Um, you know, I grew up as a, as a, as a teenager, all those books um, are from that you know, Levant period, uh, um, you know, Bitter Lemons, Alexandria Quartet, all those books. Dad was a, a voracious reader of all that and felt very sort of um, close to, to all that sort of culture. I mean, uh, let's dial back a little bit, Lachlan. Um, mm. I, I, read, I read a survey once that found that because of your father's incisive and at times quirky page one observations about diverse elements of the lives of South Australians, Des was the state's best known person. Um, so tell me about his early career. Did he come from a journalism family? His uh, background actually um, is, is, a, is an obscure and interesting one, actually, Pete. He was, um, his father was, um, very working class guy, Bob Fox, his father's name was. Um, he was a, uh, Bob Fox was a veteran of the First World War. I think he was uh, part of the um, Australian Light Horse that uh, fought at Beersheba and came back to Australia. Um, and then during the Depression, um, couldn't find any, any work. So he became an, an itinerant worker and left the family home and, um, and went looking for work. And at that stage, his marriage to my father's mother had broken, broken down. So uh, so dad went to live with his, his relatives, um, his, um, his aunt, Aunt Mabs, who was married to a very uh, well-to-do Adelaide lawyer, Colin Cahoon. Um, and so, so dad uh, was essentially then adopted out to the Cahoons, even though he was born as Desmond Fox. Um, he then became known as Desmond Fox Cahoon with, with a hyphenated name. Um, and, and Colin Cahoon was very well known. He was a, um, a QC in, uh, in Adelaide and, uh, and then sort of took over uh, dad's education, sent him to, uh, to private schools and, and, uh, and sort of brought him up um, as his son. But in the meantime, the Second World War had intervened and Bob Fox, um, his dad's father, was um, re-enlisted in, um, in the Australian uh, Expeditionary Force and uh, was then captured by the Japanese at the Fall of Singapore uh, and spent all of the war in, um, in the Changi prisoner of war camp. So dad um, never had a lot to do with his father and was brought up by, by Colin Cahoon. So, by the time um, he got to meet my mother and they fell in love, my mother came from a very well-to-do family. Father was a, uh, um, a GP in the eastern suburbs of Adelaide. Um, Dad was uh, going by the name of Desmond Fox Cahoon, hyphenated. Um, and um, so Meg's father said that the only way that, um, that he would permit um, Des to see my mother was that if he, uh, if he dropped the fox and became um, Des Cahoon, and that was acceptable. So, so that's why he became, <laughs> became Des Cahoon. Um, uh, originally, so, so that's his background. So your mum's family were terribly grand. In fact, her name, Maureen Enid Glastonbury, <laughs> yeah, is, right. um, you know, typically in the self-effacing Aussie way, 
was abbreviated to M-E-G, so she was always known as Meg. That's right. Ne never called Maureen. Um, although my, my father, if he was angry with her sometimes, would always, he'd call her Maureen Enid in a sort of a, a, an icy voice, but that never, didn't happen very often. No, she, was, uh, she, she was Meg for, uh, for you know, um, all, all her life known, known as Meg. That's right. So your grandfather, uh, Meg's father, by all accounts, was traditional to the extreme, wasn't he? Well, he was, yeah. Um, you know, not unusual in, that, in those days. He was a very well-to-do doctor. Um, he had um, three kids, two sons and, um, and a daughter, all of whom wanted to go into medicine. Um, the sons were allowed to go into medicine, but uh, my mother, who was possibly, um, you know, the more academically, um, uh, the high academic achiever of, of the three kids, was not allowed to have a medical career. Um, she was supposed to have a career that, um, you know, she could drop as soon as she married some well-to-do bloke and, uh, and they had a family. So, so she was sort of pushed into, um, into nursing, um, allied to, to the medical profession, of course, and health. So um, she wasn't really able to, to have a, um, a profession. So, you know, and that was as a result of the, uh, the stern regime under, under which she lived with my grandfather. Yeah, and as you say, not too uncommon back then. Um, so Des, your father, moved into journalism at the Adelaide Advertiser in 1947. And this yep. would be where he met his lifelong friend, fellow copy boy, Don Riddell. Or is it right. Don Riddle or Don Riddell? Riddell. Riddell, Riddell. Yeah. Um, And he was another character who also went on to becoming uh, editor-in-chief of the Advertiser. Yes, yes, Don and Don and uh, Des were, were great friends. I've got a fantastic photograph of them uh, on the uh, on the um, the boat. They in in the early nineteen fifties um, they, they took a year off and went to to England where they were supposed to conquer the world of journalism. Uh, and this fantastic picture of the two of them sort of uh, larking around on the MV Strathmore just out of Fremantle on on their way to London. So so they're lifelong lifelong friends. Don's uh, still alive today, and I still have quite a lot of contact with him. So. Uh, but yeah, so they went off to, to England in the 50s, rode uh, a tandem pushbike all over England and weren't able to work as journalists because I think there was a, uh, um, I think there was a, um, a ban on, on foreign journalists. The National Union of Journalists in the UK wasn't, le wasn't letting foreign journalists work in the UK newspapers. So um, hopes of working in the British media were dashed. So uh, Dad and Don ended up uh, cycling around um, England on a tandem bicycle, living in these um, burnt um, bombed out buildings from the, from the Blitz. And... Uh, and working on pig farms, <laughs> so, so that's what they they ended up doing. But uh, but Don was a great character. His, his, Donald Vivian Riddell, D V Riddell, his name was uh, is is. And um, later we had a cadet newspaper at the Advertiser called the Resetrebda, which was the Advertiser spelt backwards. Uh, that the cadets would would publish every year, and um, and routinely um, uh, Don Riddell would just be referred to as V D Riddled. <laughs> so, so Des meets the unflappable Maureen Enid Glastonbury. Um, mm -hmm. Their engagement survived uh, Cahoon's European adventure, and they were married in 1953. And despite her parents' reservations, this became a famous union, which continued until their death six months apart in 2005. Passionate. Well, Full yes. of jokes, wit, parties, wild dreams, you say, some of which actually came to fruition. Well, some of them didn't. I mean, they had this, um, this earlier dream was to go up to Papua New Guinea and um, start up a coffee, a coffee plantation up there. So this was their dream. They were going to um, drive. They bought a, um, some Jeep or a four-wheel drive or a Land Rover or something like that with the intention of driving up to uh, uh, Darwin and then putting it on a boat and um, taking it to Port Moresby and starting up a coffee plantation. Um, well, that never happened. 
Um, Dad also, possibly from his time uh, with Don in, um, in the UK, always wanted to start a piggery. Um, he was fascinated by pigs. And whenever we went to the Royal Show, we'd always go and see the pigs first. So his dreams to start a, <laughs> to become a pig farmer came to naught, um, as did his uh, plans to, um, to, to start a vineyard. Um, but, you know, apart from that, there were, you know, he probably started about sort of half a dozen to, um, to a dozen books, plays, films, never finished any of them. Um, you know, he was just bursting with ideas, but was having too much fun, really, to, um, to, to, to really execute any of them to the, to the full extent. And yet, despite that, they became, your mum and dad became one of South Australia's power couples of the 1970s and 80s. What was it like growing up in Adelaide on, I think, Simpson Parade? From what I yes. read, the house rapidly became a social hub and a crossroads of journalism and hospitality and politics and arts and a little bit of winemaking. It sounded like the Bloomsbury of South Australia. It was a little bit. I mean, South Australia in the in the in the nineteen seventies was it was it's a very interesting period. I mean, I grew up there, so of course I'm very biased. But it had traditionally been extremely conservative, uh, and then in the late nineteen sixties, um, um, a premier was elected, Don Dunstan, who was a Labor premier, um, openly uh, bisexual, wore pink shorts to Parliament. Um, South Australia was the first state in Australia to uh, to decriminalise homosexuality. Um, they started up the Festival of Arts, um, and South Australia was very affluent and wealthy then. The manufacturing base was still uh, was still very vibrant, so it was a, a affluent but enlightened and um, and progressive society. And at, at that time, there were a lot of people who um, Queenslanders, for example, who uh, were living under a very um, you know a dark regime, the conservative regime of the National Party under the Jockey Peterson. They all flocked to Adelaide, um, and I. I was born in you know, the early 60s. I remember as a teenager going out and meeting a lot of people who uh, were exiles from uh, other parts of Australia who'd come to South Australia because of its uh, progressive um, policies and, and just the progressive atmosphere there. And so mum and dad um, were at sort of the apex of that in a way. You know, um, If anybody was in town who was like a, you know, directing, it was the director of the Festival of Arts or um, visiting newspaper editor, they would invariably um, find their way to our house and to, for drinks. Um, you know, I was always being woken up at, um, you know, 2 a.m. in the morning, even if it was a school night. So I had to come down and meet so-and-so, so some traveling Nigerian newspaper editor who was in town or, or a group of traveling Nigerian newspaper editors. Um, you know, and I was led to, um, you know, pour them drinks and make sure that, um, you know, the, the beer glass was tilted to the right extent. So I didn't put too much of a head on the beer or give them their, their champagne. And mum would be roused up and all of a sudden sort of volivants with, um, with sort of a crab paste would be would be distributed you know that sort of thing you know um and but it was all very spontaneous um and dad would just but yes anybody who was in town um would be would would, would meet up with dad and invariably would end up at our house even the likes of um former prime minister bob Hawke would uh, um, i remember him coming over um you know i mean things like uh, dad and and bob Hawke two famous drinkers, this is when Hawke was drinking, um, I remember they, they crashed an undertaker's convention once um, out at one of the, uh, the major hotels in, uh, in Adelaide. Walked in there after they'd been to dinner, crashed the undertaker's convention, got blind drunk, abused everybody, and, and uh, were told later that they were never going to be invited back because they'd <laughs> scandalised this group of undertakers. So, uh, I mean, how did your mum take to all of this? Does she love being the uh, perfect hostess of the 1960s and 70s? She did. Yeah. No, no. It's what, what, she, what she lived for, really. Um, 
you know, obviously she lived for her family. Um, you know, she was a fierce and, and, and loyal mother and loved us dearly. But uh, but the party, they, they just lived for the party, Pete. You know, um, I had this image of uh, you know dad in the in the powder blue safari suit with a uh, with with a cigarette and a, and a glass of wine, and mum in I don't know the culottes. You know, those flowing culottes that that, that women. I'm used trying to wear. not to think about them, but carry on. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> wearing those and um, you know carrying a tray of um, of, of hors d'oeuvres in, into our um, into our um, sunroom, which was sort of gaudily decorated with all these sort of orange and, and yellow couches and the obligatory sort of a, a Picasso picture of, um, of a Don Quixote on the, uh, on the, on the wall. Oh, so, fantastic. Um, so it was very much like that. And, and I, when I went to your parents' um, place, even though it was in the farm, it was a very similar sort of uh, feel and, very, and vibe to... My mum and dad's to, bar. Yeah, the, yeah, the yeah. 1970s bar, yes, absolutely. Yeah. So, Lachlan, there was a sojourn in New York, actually 18 months in New York. Do you remember much of that? Because New York in the 1960s must have been absolutely awesome. Yeah, I think I was a little bit too young to really sort of sort to, to really remember it, but I, I do remember, um, yeah, Dad followed up the, um, the, the posting in London with, uh, with 18 months in New York. And uh, I do remember we had. Um, a final trip across America um, to San Francisco, and we caught the plane back to um, to to, uh, South, to Adelaide from from San Francisco. And I do remember that trip really well. We bought a a, a red Rambler sedan um, and and drove that across. And I remember things like um, down in um, in in Georgia, you know, um, segregation. Um, we, we we had to go wash our wash our clothes in a different laundrette from um, from from black people, and just um, and. I remember my parents talking about the segregation and being quite shocked about that. Um, and yeah, so we drove across across America and um, tried to sell the um, the the ambassador um, before we flew back to uh, to Australia, but Dad couldn't sell it, so he just gave the key to some uh, some kid in the um, in the car park at the airport and said, "Hey, kid, do you want this car?" <laughs> and uh, gave the keys, and we got on the plane and flew back to Australia. You you made his day. And and then he so he came back to Australia. You the whole family came back to Australia. But during this time, your father was seconded to work as press attaché to the British royal family on their visits to Australia in the nineteen sixties. In fact, the Queen Mother uh, remembered your father rather fondly, um, despite your dad being a staunch Republican. Did he actually enjoy these assignments? Oh, I, I think he did, Pete. Yeah, I mean, he. Um, I think he got got on particularly well with the with the former Queen Mother. Um, after um, my father passed away, we were going through a whole lot of um, stuff um, in, in in his drawers, stuff we'd never seen before. And there was a there was one sort of um, handwritten note on the uh, on on the on the um, the paper of the um, um, Royal Yacht um, Britannia. Um, and um, it was written by the Queen Mother in her, in her handwriting. It said, "Who oh, dares?" You were such a help at the cocktail party last night. Thank you so much for your wit and humour. <laughs> and so, so I think that um, I, I don't. I think that the um, Queen Mother liked a G and T and also a glass of champagne. And I think um, I think she had a, um, a hilarious time with um, with with Dad. And um, he also sort of a, a chaperoned a young Prince Charles around as well. I think there was some scenario where they were all. Um, uh, riding up, riding um, motorcycles around the uh, Governor General's residence, Yarralumna, in um, in Canberra, and um, digging up the um, and putting divots in the in the lawn from riding these um, these motorcycles around. So um, I, I'm sure there's more, but um, they're the only things that I can really remember from it. 
Oh, what a life. I mean, what makes a good editor, Lachlan? What was it about your father that made him so successful and so famous within the media in Australia? I mean, love him or loathe him, but Australia has churned out some of the biggest names in media on the globe. I mean, the Murdochs, Kerry Packer, the list goes on. And of course, currently, I'm a huge fan of Australian journalist Jonathan Swan, who recently interviewed Donald Trump and absolutely tore him to pieces. But it was Jonathan's facial expressions that had me in hysterics. I don't know whether that's a typical Aussie trait. Yeah, I think there's a there's sort of a scepticism um, um, among uh, Australians, a natural scepticism in, in, our, in our national personality, which, uh, which does lend itself to, um, to being tr that sort of traditional sort of journalist. But you ask what, um, what made Dad such a good editor? I think it was understanding the role that a newspaper plays in a society and understanding that, that um, a newspaper is, is, is a reflection um, of what, what happens in that society, but, but also has an opportunity to lead it in, in, in a subtle way. Um, and that's not to say that he was doctrinaire um, in the way that perhaps the Murdochs can be accused of being doctrinaire. But, but you know, at the time, South Australia was going through a lot of change. I've talked before about, you know, the progressive sort of um, strain that was in South Australian culture at that time. And Dad, he was very much of that nature anyway, but, but picked up on that. And for a time, the, the advertiser was uh, in the late 60s and early 70s, not just because of Dad, but um, for all kinds of reasons. But he allowed it to become much more of a... Um, sophisticated thinking progressive newspaper than it had been previously where it had just previously been a sort of a much more conservative paper of record and the other thing I think about it was that he was able to uh, um, recruit some other really good journalists and also give them the ability to um, and, and the license to to do um, their, their best work you know so many people are in media are stuck in straitjackets where they have to you know churn out cookie cutter material but um, but that wasn't the case um, it was a much more sort of free willing period but I think the uh, the advertiser of that period was uh, was a better newspaper for it. I mean, was it a liberal newspaper? Um, do you mean in the, in the in the liberal sense of the Liberal Party of Australia or small? No, liberal? no, liberal as in liberal thinking. Yeah, yes, oh, definitely, yeah, definitely a liberal thinking newspaper. You know, it was. Um, is it still? Is it still, is it still going? Oh yes, no, no. Uh, the, the the advertiser um, when Dad was working for it and when I was working for it. Um, because I did my cadetship there, funnily enough. Um, it was um, independently owned. Um, it was part of advertising newspapers for Frightier Limited, was, which was a, uh, an old Adelaide company listed on the Adelaide Stock Exchange, um, which eventually uh, threw in its lot with the um, Herald and Weekly Times group in Melbourne. But what happened was that in 1986, after I had left the advertiser, um, Rupert Murdoch took over the Herald and Weekly Times. Um, and so he, as part of his takeover of the Herald and Weekly Times, he also acquired the Adelaide Advertiser. Um, and under the media ownership laws at the time, that, ended, that meant that Rupert had the Adelaide Advertiser, which was the morning paper and by far the most profitable and biggest paper in South Australia, and also the Adelaide News, which was the afternoon paper and which was Murdoch's first newspaper, which he inherited from his father, Sir Keith. Um, and um, that's where News Corporation gets its name from. It gets its name from the Adelaide News. But um, typically, um, without any, any kind of sentimentality, uh, Murdoch sold off the, the Adelaide News because he had to sell one of them under the laws at the time. And um, he now owns the advertiser. So the advertiser is now part of the uh, News Limited group. Uh, you know, typical of the age, your folks were enthusiastic smokers and drinkers. Um, and your dad, you say, survived largely on Vegemite sandwiches and minestrone soup. 
But yes. um, it was actually your mum who passed away first. Yeah, well, that was a big surprise to, to all of us, Pete. Um, in her family, um, there was a history of, of longevity. Her mother, for example, li lived well into her 90s, as did her, 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 um, her sisters, my, uh, my mother's aunts. Um, and it was always, um, you know, dad was the one. He had a triple heart bypass operation at 49, you know, um, and used to smoke 80 Peter Stuyvesant's a day, drink, um, drink all day and, and eat a Vegemite sandwich on white bread. So he was always a candidate for, um, for, for, for going early. But, uh, yeah, so, but mum was so stoic that, um, that she, I don't think she ever really told any of us that, um, that she was ill or had problems, you know. Um, so it was a big surprise um she just um collapsed after lunch um one sunday i wasn't there i was living in the state at the time and uh, and passed away within uh, within a couple of hours um, and then your dad was gone six months later that's right he was yeah so they yes within six months um mm. I, I lost both of them so you know now lachlan i know there was one final story about des you wanted to tell us that's right, Pete. There's one story which I think sort of encapsulates so much of his attitude towards life and also to death. Um, it was really um, only about um, within the week after uh, my mother passed away. And um, at the wake, um, we had, it was a big wake for mum, as you can probably imagine. And uh, we were approached by a family friend who I won't mention. I'll call him Colin for the, for the sake of, uh, of this interview. I don't think I should actually mention who it was. We were approached by Colin at the wake and we hadn't seen Colin for some time. Colin came up to us and said, oh, Des, Lachlan, you really must come over for dinner. Um, some night this week, how about Wednesday night? You really must come. We haven't seen you in ages. And, um, and Dad and I looked at each other and said, oh, yes, all right, Colin, we'll be there. And then later, <laughs> we were at home and we were laughing about it because Colin was, was a spectacular bore. And, um, and we were always giggling about uh, what, a, what a dreadful man he was. And, and so Dad and I were just sort of, in the days after Mum died, we were saying, how can we possibly get out of going to Colin's place on Wednesday night? Really don't want to go to Colin's place. Anyway, on the Tuesday night, the night before we were supposed to go over for dinner to Collins, um, I, I cooked dinner. I'm mindful that Mum had only died uh, and, and been buried, um, you know, within a week. Um, so I'm sitting there with Dad, um, cooked dinner with him. We'd, we'd had um, a glass of red wine with our dinner. And all of a sudden, Dad has a stroke at the, um, at the dinner table. He had quite a few small strokes um, in the latter part of his life. So um, I pressed the button for the ambulance because they had an ambulance button installed in their house. Um, and he's having a stroke in front of me. I think, good heavens, I'm going to lose both parents within, within a week of each other. Dad's about to die. Um, so the ambulance show up. They, um, they get the, um, the stretcher out of the back of the ambulance, rush in there. Dad's starting to recover a little bit. And he's starting to look all right, you know. Um, and they, they've got him on the stretcher. They said, look, we really do need to take him to hospital. Um, and so um, I'm pulling him out, very concerned, think he's um, about, to, uh, about to expire. And he all of a sudden comes to life, fully conscious, looks up at me and gives me, gives me a smile, grabs my hand and says, you'll see what I'll do to get out of having dinner with Colin. <laughs> <laughs> and even went, even so, on his deathbed, he was hilarious. That's right. And so the next night, the night that we were supposed to be going um, um, to see um, Colin at the dinner, we both didn't want to go. Dad was in hospital, so I went in to see him and um, we spent the evening giggling about the whole thing. So that was his attitude to life uh, and to death, which is uh, summed up pretty neatly in that story, I think. And poor Colin, I wonder if he knows who he is. <laughs> I don't think so. I don't think so. But it was the best excuse to not ever going to dinner that, um, that, that I think I've ever been able to have. <laughs> I think Sorry, it's true on. to say that your parents' ability to enjoy life 
um, I know you're adopted, but uh, their ability to enjoy life has been passed on to you and your kids. <laughs> it has indeed. Look, I think everybody's, everybody's experience of adoption is different, you know, and that's why I, I don't think it's, it, it's impossible um, as an adopted person for me to, to subscribe to any real um, consistent view of, um, of the, the upside or downside of adoption or, or what, what, what it's like. It's different for everybody. All I can say is that, um, you know, I was uh, lucked out big time and um, I never thought that, uh, that my adopted parents were anything other than, than my parents, you know, and I totally became their son. I went into journalism. Um, I, you know, I love a party. Um, <laughs> I am very, very much their son. Um, and, um, and, you know, I have two kids uh, in their, um, well, they're young adults now, 26 and, and 22. And, uh, yeah, they're both in the media and um, they're both and, showing... And they both life. love life. They do, yeah. So I, wish, both... I wish I'd met your parents, I must say, Lachlan. Well, I wish you had too, because funnily enough, they did come and visit us when we were uh, living in Hong Kong in, um, in, in the late 90s and um, in early 2000s. So, so that was the time when we first became friends. So um, it's, that was an opportunity missed, I'd have to say. But I do have to say that I'm very pleased that I met your parents. Well, Lachlan, before we go, tell us a bit more about Australian lives, some of the characters and the sort of story you're trying to attract. Okay, sure. So, um, look, as I've always been fascinated by um, um, obituaries in, in newspapers. I, I read them um, religiously. If there's an obituary, I will always read them. I love the obituaries in um, the UK Telegraph. Um, the New York Times has a, has a brilliant obituary page. So, I've always been really interested in them. And... Um, because they're, you know, they're, they're, they're brief biographies um, of, um, of fascinating lives. But the, th the point is that, um, that those, um, those obituaries which are published in, um, in newspapers are of people who are considered to be famous or, or well-known. Um, but not only my parents, my parents had a, were reasonably well-known, but, but I found that there are people out there who are not well-known or not famous who have also lived incredible lives and, and they are worthy of records. So, so what I've done is, to create the site australianlives.com.au which is a place where the uh, extraordinary lives lived by ordinary Australian people can be told um, and over time I look I've only just recently started it but over time my hope is that it become um, an expanding um, site um, a resource of, uh, of Australian biography where people can tell um, stories of, um, of their loved ones I mean for example, we've had some um, recent contributions from people who um, writing about ancestors who lived in the 19th century. Um, we also welcome um, obituaries of people who just recently passed away. So my my plan with it over time is to is to create a a, a site which is a, a database of uh, of Australian biography, but uh, but not of people who are considered to be famous or well known, but of people who are ordinary but who have also got incredible stories to tell. It's a great uh, thing to do, actually. And how how can we actually find it? What's the what's the link to Australian yeah, Lives? Uh, well, www.australianlives.com.au. Okay. Um, uh, who decides which lives are worth mentioning? Obviously, everyone's life is important to someone. Do you have to reject some stories? Um, I've not had, not been in a position to do that yet. I mean, look, there's only I only have you know a dozen or so um, obituaries up there already, as, as I've only just recently launched. So, so no, I haven't been in that, in that position uh, recently. And, and I have thought, you know, I do need to to be mindful. There could be controversy um, over um, over some um, obituaries which go in there. Some people who uh, 
um, post-obituaries might, you know, they might have enemies. Absolutely. But that's that's something that, I, that I've, um, yeah, I'm mindful of, but I, that's um, issues which haven't, haven't arisen yet, but I will have to deal with that at some point, I would think. Lachlan, I think it might be good to leave on a quote from an obituary about your father in an Australian national, um, and it goes like this. Other people can write, other people are tolerant, but there's only one Cahoon who can write 1,500 columns on the front page of the newspaper and still have people smiling. He doesn't write down to us or up to us or even at us. He talks to us in best advertiser style. He is unique. Lachlan Cahoon, it has been an absolute pleasure talking to you. Thank you for joining me on Conversations with Pete Wood. It's been a pleasure, and I'll come back anytime. Bye. Bye. That was my good friend Lachlan Cahoon. Lachlan has been a journalist for more than three decades and has written for some of the world's best-known mastheads, such as Financial Times, South China Morning Post, and the Australian Financial Review. He was the Hong Kong-based Asia business correspondent for the London Evening Standard and has also worked extensively in broadcast journalism as a producer and documentary maker for the Australian Broadcast Corporation. Australian Lives can be found at www.australianlives.com.au Well, that's all for now. But if you enjoyed listening to that podcast, you might also find my book, Mud Between Your Toes, faintly amusing. You can buy the book on Amazon. You can find both series one and two of my podcasts on a plethora of platforms, from direct links on my Mud Between Your Toes Facebook page to apps such as Podbean, Apple Music, iTunes Store, Spotify Podcasts, Pocket Casts, Stitcher, Castbox, TuneIn Radio, and Google Podcasts. So don't miss out on my next episode. Goodbye.